0: Hi there, welcome to the Future Ready podcast, where we explore how to build future ready organizations in a new never normal. My name is Arne Cutting, founder of COSIN and your host. In our first season, we will go deep on the topic of transformation and innovation. Many companies are moving from change to change. The impact for employees varies from simple process improvements to reorganizations that changes ways of working to massive disruptions. Such as the digital transformation, which jeopardizes the entire business model. This often leads to layoffs, relocations, or downgradings with severe personal implications. Depending on how well these changes are managed, people experience significant losses or bereavement levels. In today's podcast, I want to find out if organizations can suffer something like a collective trauma and I want to explore what companies can really do to increase their resilience. I am thrilled to discuss these questions with the world's most famous expert in the field of trauma studies and human resilience, Professor Dr. George Bonanno. Dr. Bonanno is the Chair of the Department of Counseling and Clinical Psychology and Director of the Lost Trauma and Emotion Lab at Teachers College at the Columbia University, New York City. For more than two decades, his work has been devoted to understand how humans cope with and react to loss, potential trauma and other forms of extreme life events. Professor Bonanno is the author of many books such as The Other Side of Sadness or more recently The End of Trauma, where he provides a radical new look at trauma and how to treat it. But before we start, a rather embarrassing note. When we recorded this session on December 21st, our technical equipment was apparently already on Christmas break. Whilst the sound quality of Professor Bonanno was excellent, all my questions were almost inaudible and thus had to be re-recorded. Our sound engineer Carsten did a great job fixing most of it, but please excuse the remaining smaller sound hiccups. When I realized how bad the sound quality of my questions was, I asked Professor Bonano how on earth he could possibly respond to me. Well, he said, I was reading your lips. Remarkable, as the rest of his responses. Please enjoy. Professor Bonanno, welcome to the Future Ready Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much. I'm very happy to talk with you today.
0: Professor Bonanno, what's your story? What brought you to study what could be seen as sad topics, such as pain, trauma, and loss?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, It was kind of an accidental occurrence in the beginning. I was finishing my PhD. I was doing more experimental work, but I was trained in clinical psychology. So I, I decided I wanted to shift gears a little bit. And I was first offered a position in San Francisco, a postdoctoral research position studying grief, of all things, bereavement and, and grief. <laughs> and I wasn't terribly enthusiastic about this idea. I, was, I had a little bit of an apprehension about it, as you intuited, um, a lot of sadness, pain. I thought this was not something I necessarily want to get into. But immediately, almost immediately, my curiosity, my intellectual curiosity took over because I looked into these literatures. I didn't know so much about them. I looked into these literatures, and I realized this seemed very out of date to me. It mm-hmm. seemed like there were a lot of ideas in this field that were not, um, they were not compatible with all that we'd learned in psychology in recent years in psychiatry, and neuroscience was just beginning. And I thought, well, this would be kind of interesting to explore this, and, just, and we began to design studies. and. Almost right away, we, we saw things that were kind of seemed to me the possibility of changing how this, this world is viewed. And that was enormously exciting. As far as the ongoing sadness and pain, I, I don't actually experience that because we have – from the beginning as well, we began to see how resilient human beings were um, yeah. because we used subtly different methods that had been used before. and I, And from the beginning, I thought, well, okay – this is kind of uplifting in a strange way. People can get through this. And that to me, you know, was, was uh, that was not a, a downer, the opposite. It, was, it made me feel good about human beings.
0: The term trauma or having a traumatic experience is used quite frequently in everyday language. To start with, can you delineate for us where normal experiences end and where traumatic ones start?
1: Yeah, sure. Well... Basically, in the professional literature, you know, the diagnostic literature, I'm not a huge fan of diagnoses the way they're used now, but in that literature, trauma is always an extremely unusual event, a horrific event, extremely frightening and threatening event, usually something violent or, you know, where it produces injury or a great potential for harm. And those, have, those events do happen to people in the course of their lifetime, but they're not very common. And this is clear throughout, even though there's been some um, waxing and waning of how subjective that definition might be. Through the U.S., the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, and in, in most of Europe and mo- many parts of the world, the, um, the uh, International Classification of Disorders, the ICD, which is produced by the World Health Organization, Both of those diagnostic um, nomenclatures limit this to just a really unusual, extremely horrific, violent, life-threatening event. Mm -hmm. That's what a trauma is.
0: In your work, you highlight that an event itself does not necessarily lead to trauma. They are potential trauma. What are the key influencing factors here?
1: Yes. And in fact, so... It's an it's an interesting distinction, a subtle distinction. I've used this in my word in my work. I'm sorry, I've used this in my work for a long time now. Instead of referring to events as traumatic, I call them potentially traumatic events, and that's because it really no event all we call always causes trauma. It does have a lot to do with the individual, the context, etc., which doesn't mean that anything can be a trauma. Again, we refer to potential traumatic events as the same as, as traumatic events in these diagnostic manuals. It's got to be something out of the ordinary, unusually horrific and and threatening. But it's the, even those events don't cause trauma always. They're potentially traumatic.
0: In your book, you highlight that most people seem to recover well, even from very tough experiences such as 9/11. How do you see things with the current COVID crisis? Do you think we will suffer a collective trauma?
1: Um, I do not. Um, the, first of all, the COVID crisis for the vast majority of people is not traumatic. It is dramatic it, is often used colloquially to mean bad, severe, and an event can be very severe without being traumatic. Say losing, you know, huge financial loss is a horrible event to go through, and it's it, it can make people profoundly depressed but it's not traumatic because it does not include this, this violent or life-threatening aspect. The COVID crisis for most people is not violent or life-threatening. It's just, it's stress. It's exhausting. It's stressful. It wears us out. There is a kind of an interesting phenomenon though, around this this idea of collective trauma. Um, First of all, collective trauma is a kind of a a misnomer to some extent. the entire groups of people do not become traumatized, but some of those people, maybe a lot of those people will be traumatized, say, in a huge national disaster. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody's traumatized. But something interesting happens when there is a, a large-scale event like the COVID crisis or like you know the 9-11 attacks or like an, like an enormous national disaster, the tsunami. Um, In the beginning, there's a kind of a collective fear and and distress about it that can be sort of contagious. And you see a a lot of symptoms in a lot of people, but those typically don't last long. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that that initial response doesn't last that long, you know, sometimes less than a month. And then we, we, so that's a kind of almost um, group experience. Um, but it doesn't actually become trauma for most people. And we've even seen this after 9/11, you know, the, the in, in the US the, the the entire country showed a lot of symptoms early on, but maybe the entire world, um because mm-hmm. this event wasn't was unprecedented and it changed the way we live. But um most of those um, symptoms declined relatively quickly. And then there were the the sort of I just say the, the normally expected Percentages of people who might be traumatized.
0: Let's move now into the organizational setting. First of all, let me highlight that you cannot, of course, compare the kind of events you mentioned earlier with organizational changes. Nevertheless, working with organizations, it seems to me that some changes almost have a traumatic impact on the organizational DNA. This could be a major layoff wave, the closing of a site. The acquisition by a competitor, etc. Talking to employees, you hear this story again and again, and it almost seems to prevent an organization to move on. Is it wrong to call this a collective trauma?
1: Well, um, I don't. Again, I don't. Wouldn't consider a lot of these traumatic in the definition that, that we've been talking about because they don't. Um, involve violent or life-threatening stressors. That doesn't mean, again, that they're not severe and not disturbing. They may be profoundly depressing. People may suffer grief, and grief is very different than, than say, PTSD, trauma reactions. Okay. Grief is more of a turning inward and being in feeling despondent and, you know, um, f- feeling despondent about the future. And, and grief. Can occur with anything, really. This is what the research seems to show. Grief can occur with anything that involves a, a profound loss of identity, a sense as if a piece of me is missing. So, if a person is prof- is very seriously invested in a certain job or certain career, and then to lose that position or have to, um, you know, no longer see oneself as a as a as a capable person who's able to earn a livelihood. That can be, uh, there can be an experience of grief there because it's the loss of this identity. I'm no longer a person who has this autonomy or this capacity to support my family or whatever, you know.
0: Understood. So these kind of changes do not lead to trauma in the official definition, but to grief. I wonder do people process grief and loss differently within an organization compared to how they would do it as individuals?
1: Well, uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think individuals would probably process such events as individuals, but you have this unusual context in an organization of a of a kind of a the potential for a shared reality or a shared um experience of an event. And sometimes that can be um that can be obviously very difficult because it, it people can can create you know, this classic mob idea where people, you know, get very upset and magnify their upset. But it can also be a shared notion of support. Um, We did a study, actually, several studies of job loss um, a number of years ago. One of them we did in Germany and the other in the U.S. And this was some time ago, but I'm trying to remember this now. But when, when a job loss was local, it was different than when the job loss was part of a national trend and i mm-hmm. think it was it was easier actually when it was part of the national trend because felt people felt this sort of sense of well it's not me it's just everybody's losing their job and mm-hmm. I, I may not be quite remembering those res- results correctly but the point is that there's a kind of a shared sense of of being uh, or experiencing the same thing and possibly supporting each other Possibly not. It can, you know, go different ways. Mm-hmm. There are also the very curious phenomena in the past of they—they've they, been called a rather—it's um, rather old-fashioned title of, of group hysteria. But mm-hmm. there have been some some very interesting events in the past where a small thing was inflated to a very large thing by by the sort of group dynamics. And so yeah. I think it the group can go this group effect, the the, the organizational effect. And go different directions, and I think that's where the management part becomes very crucial.
0: Talking about uh, group dynamics, the Kobler Roskorff is a very famous model used in organizational science to describe the roller coaster that organizations go through in changes. I've read that you are not particularly fond of this model, as you say that it's that not all people go equally. Through the Five Steps of Denial, Anger, Bargaining, Depression, and Acceptance. Can you elaborate on this a little bit more?
1: Okay. Well, I, um, I should preface my remarks by saying I apologize for, for um, bursting the bubble on this one because um, it's, it's, it's not that I think it's limited. I think it actually is wrong. I don't think these, these things exist at all. And there's been never been any evidence for these stages, um, and you know I think evidence is very important. What what my own research has shown for for many years now, about thirty years, consistently over and over and over, is that the vast majority of people are basically resilient re- relatively quickly. So most people undergoing a, an extreme stressor, or even a, even something like a job loss, most people, the majority, are almost always. Basically okay fairly quickly. You know, they they're they're not going through any stages, they're suffering a little bit for a very short period of time, and then they're they're relatively healthy and you know functioning normally. The the stages would presumably happen pretty quickly, and as I said, there's just no evidence for those. And the majority of people probably don't go through these stages or experience these things. But I think that this this notion of these five um pieces of the these five stages. There's really just no evidence that, that any of those things are sort of necessary for any individual. Now, I should tell you that this came from, initially, Kubler-Ross was working with dying people, people facing their own death. There was absolutely no research on that. As far as I know, there never has been, because that's a very hard thing, it's a very hard topic to study. But then it got, that those the idea of those five stages became popular in that literature. But then it got kind of, um, Layered on top of bereavement, and Kubler-Ross did not do bereavement research. But other people took these five stages, and then it took a life of its own. But it's not a very common idea in the, the research literature anymore because it's just been kind of left behind. But it's a popular idea in the general public, which you know it means that that, that people enjoy it or people find some meaning in it, which is you know which is good if people find meaning in things. But I, I don't think there's a downside to that as well, because many people have reported in the studies I've done and other studies that they think something's wrong with them if they don't experience these stages. Yeah. And so that's the danger of this kind of model. Um,
0: this is very interesting. Uh, your lab is doing a lot of research about resilience in the face of extreme adversity, a terminology that is also pretty on vogue in the organizational setting. As mentioned earlier, you found that resilience is natural to humans, suggesting that it cannot be taught through specialized programs and that there is virtually no existing research with which to design resilience trainings. Does this mean that all the investments that companies are making in resilience coaching or resilience trainings is actually a waste of money?
1: Well, um, I don't want to make that statement because um, I don't know I don't know who who would I be offending by saying that, but um if you were to ask me on a park bench sitting in a park bench just relaxing, I would say yes, it's a waste of money um, because the research that we've done really, and other people have done shows there's there couldn't possibly be much much success in these programs unless they were retooled, and I can explain that in a little bit how I think they could be retooled but in my own research, there's a kind of an idea in psychology or in the in the in the broader public. You see these headlines often: the five key um, traits of resilient people. Yes. The five, you know, eight, the five, the three. It varies greatly. And um, you know, we, we measure these things in our research. We measure other things when we measure lots of different factors to see if we can predict who will be resilient. We can we can identify up to fifty different things because there's many, many things that predict resilience, many, many facets, traits, behaviors, resources. But one thing I've puzzled over the years about this, which I call this now the resilience paradox, none of these factors ever explain much of the variance. In a statistical sense, I would say they don't explain much of the variance. But what that basically means is they moved, le- le- they moved the needle only a little bit. They moved the needle just a tiny little bit. They explain a little tiny piece of the the pie. If I, if you think of resilience as a pie, a resilient person is this pie. And we're trying to explain it. We assume we have an enormous pie slice of maybe a quarter that's related to one particular dimension and a quarter that's maybe related to another trait or another facet of life. And we're going to do a resilience program to increase that portion. But that's actually completely unrealistic. The pie slices are tiny. Imagine a pie slice, just a little tiny. A pie slice so small you couldn't even eat it, basically, so so thin. And we get lots of those, and we we get a bigger part of the pie. But we rarely ever even explain half of this pie. And we've done studies where we have blood, so we can measure stress response and cell metabolism, and we can measure all kinds of other things, and you know, cor- um, hormonal responses to the stress and all kinds of personality factors and we measure it. We've done these studies in emergency departments and things. We still only explain a portion of it with all those different measures. So I, that's why I, this is a, a paradox, and I've I've finally begun to understand why. If, if you would like, I can go into that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Okay, so um, really what it is is that st- – these events that we're talking about—these, you know, unusual, out of the out of the ordinary mm-hmm. events that happen to us—that we really have to cope with—they're not so common. They, they happen in people's lives, but they don't happen every day. Mm-hmm. And so, but when they happen, they're all extremely different. They're all unique. Coping with one thing is different than coping with another. So there is no one fits one size fits all you know, thing you can do that's going to get you through all these events. There is no one size fits all trait. There is no, you know, magic way to cope with these. It's really kind of an effortful process. We have to figure out what's this, what is this thing that's impinging upon me? What do I need to do here to get Hmm. by? And we then work out what would be the kind of best solution for this, this difficulty I'm having. And we also we we are a little bit like scientists in this way. There was a a, many years ago the the phrase was introduced: intuitive scientists. We're all kind of intuitive scientists. We try something. We pay attention. If it doesn't work, we try something else. We adjust. So there isn't always. I'm going to cope this way with everything, and I'll be resilient. That's just not realistic. And this this is why these effects. These are why the pie slices are so small because. They work sometimes and they don't work for other times. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing actually in the natural world. If you look at animals and humans, humans as animals, there is no one thing in life that, in, in a creature's life, that ever is always successful. There are many mm-hmm. wonderful examples of that. There's a cost and benefit to everything. So, so again, every situation is unique and we have to figure out from one situation after another as they happen to us. What's the best way to get through this? And That's how we do it. And we're capable of doing this. We managed to do this. We seem to know how to do this. Um, and, and my work in the recent years has been to try to articulate more clearly what this process is and maybe, you know, enhance it in people. And that's a possibility, which I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about. But at the moment, though, we, we don't have anything.
0: I guess what you are referring to is the need to stay flexible in the face of challenges. In your work you differentiate between the flexibility mindset and the flexibility sequence. Um what can in your view organizations do to increase employees flexibility to be ready for future challenges?
1: So so I think it I think that is the key. I mean I and I I, I don't have a you know a training to offer anything like that i don't think one exists my i have several colleagues who are beginning to explore this idea and i'm beginning to explore the idea as well but what we've done is we've taken this idea the the concept that if, that humans are, have this flexibility and that's how we seem to end up resilient after these adverse events after major challenges in our life so we've broken it down into into pieces to try to study it and we've been doing this for about 15 years and we now have a pretty good idea of how this process works. It's not simple, it's got different moving parts. One is the, the way you named them, the flexibility mindset, and other is the flexibility sequence. The mindset is, is a way of thinking about adversity, of, of the challenge in their lives. It's a way of, of sort of embracing it in a way. Because aversive events are not pleasant. You know, we lose a job, we're in a, in a natural disaster, we're the victim of a violent crime an auto major automobile accident anything of this nature a terrorist attack we are um, we don't want to think about it we just want to get these events off our minds but these events won't let us do that they impinge on our consciousness they make us think about them they, they give us nightmares they make us uneasy because they there's a probably a natural process there I'm speculating there, but there's probably a natural process that our minds want us to, to get past it, um, or our minds we have an unfinished uh, threat circuit is activated that we that we that that is demanding our attention. So the mindset is kind of a way of of getting ourselves to focus on it, getting ourselves into the game, getting ourselves into the kitchen on on the big holiday, whatever it might be, whatever metaphor might work. Um, and that mindset has a couple different components: optimism. Uh, focusing on the challenge and uh, and some confidence and our coping ability, and these three things kind of work in a synergistic way to to get us thinking. Okay, I can do this. Can whatever do it this. takes. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. Yeah. That's I think the attitude. I can do it. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. And really, any way that we develop that attitude, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, I talked to a fellow recently who does this kind of obstacle course training. This yeah. kind of get get tough training. But he tells me we had to talk about this very topic. And he told me that doing that training makes people feel like they can do it. You know, they can do things they didn't know they could do. You know, anything along those lines. The sense of uh, I'll do what's necessary. I can do it. I come out on top. Usually we get through these things. I'm going to do it this time. So that attitude, the flexibility mindset, the mindset to do what's necessary. Okay. Is, begins. That's the first part. And then it gets us into what I call the flexibility sequence, which is actually kind of the nuts and bolts, how we do it. And one of those things is we literally pay attention to the context. We, we literally ask ourselves the question, what's happening? Why am I feeling this way? And, you know, often we have a very simple explanation. I'm feeling this way because I lost my job. But what's, what else is there? Why, what, what's really happening to you, right? And so... You lost a job, so you begin to have to make an alternative plan. Mm-hmm. Is there another route you can take? Is, how do you deal with the feelings you have? Whatever question might come up is what we're presented with. Then we review what we have at our disposal, our repertoire. What, what can I actually do? What am I able to do? What kind of tools do I have? What kind of resources do I have? And we review those and we kind of decide on a course of action. We do this normally without thinking about it. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, okay.
1: yeah it's a kind of an automatic thing because we, we do this all our lives. You know, children are taught these things. And we, they become more and more automated, more and more overlearned in a sense. But it helps to actually think about it consciously. And then the third step, that's the second step, is we, we basically do something. And we try it out. But the third step is we then pay attention to it and we, we decide whether it's working. We literally ask ourselves, well, is this working? Do I feel mm-hmm. better? Is this getting me to move forward? If not, we try something else. Mm-hmm. I think it, that's that's a real nice piece of it because human beings are not perfect. Even yeah. the most, most effective person still makes mistakes. We have to pay attention to what we've done, whether it worked or not, whether it brought the the product we wanted, which is that we are moving forward.
0: What is the role of leaders in the process of establishing the flexibility mindset and the flexibility sequence?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating question, actually, because I think there can be an emphasis on this approach. There can be this type of thing, not necessarily the approach I just espoused, but on the idea that we try something and see how it works. You know, we, we think about the problem first. Like what is actually the problem we have to deal with? You know, sometimes we might focus on too, too broad a scope. Well, you know, we'll take a job loss or, you know, a, a major change in the, the, the organization. If we think only about that, well, what's the problem? I lost my job. Well, that is the problem, but you know that already. You know, it's like what is really the problem? I'm feeling something. I need to explore alternatives. I need, you know, whatever the p- specific problem might be. Um, because if we focus too far on the end point, I lost my job, or you know, I I lost a, a part of my bodily function. I, I have a major problem now, and I can't do the things I used to do. That's a, that can be a little depressing. But mm-hmm. we, you know, it can be like it can seem too much. So, like well, I, you know, it's over now. I lost my job. It's over. I lost you know, the ability to, to, to exercise. It's my life's over, you know, or eat certain things. I can't do that anymore. That's depressing. That's disturbing. But if we focus more narrowly, more proximal to what's happening right now, okay, I lost my job. What do I need to, what do I need to do now? What's really my, the, the problem right now? What's making me feel this way? I need to find some alternative ways. I need to, you know, um, discuss this with my family, or I need to seek other kinds of support, or I need to, um, you know, maybe um, um, rethink what I do in life or, you know, look elsewhere. You know, all these things are yeah. the more proximal problems. And when we do address those problems, there's a sense of, I don't know if mastery is the right word, but we get a sense of, well, I can do that. I can do that. I can do it this piece, and I can do it the next piece and the next piece, because they're, they're smaller um, bits in the larger whole. And so, you know, by, by taking on small tasks, the tasks that we're confronted with in the moment, currently, we get a sense of, oh well, I can do that, I can do this. I can move on, I can do this, you know? And you get a sense of, I'm in control here, not this horrible thing happened to me and I'm helpless. And I think at an organizational level, the, the same thing could translate to an organizational level, you know. The company is going to, and, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not an expert in organizations, so I'm, 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 I'm you know, basing them on whatever I can intuit from this. But you know, if something happens to the organization, we're gonna re, we're gonna regroup, or we're gonna change, or we're gonna make big shifts in the way we do things. Focusing too much on how, how, how much harm this change might do, is gonna, is, is, is going to be difficult emotionally. But focusing more narrowly or more proximally again on here are some of the problems we have right now to deal with, some of the changes we need to go through.
0: Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I wonder, is there a certain personality trait that you would say makes some, pe- some leaders being more able to cope with uncertainty?
1: Um, that's a great question. So we've done some research on this, and we found there, there are a very small subset of people, about 10%, who are exceptionally good at this. Okay. Um, and uh, this is only the first few studies we've done. Um, they're exceptionally good at this. And then we found that um, another very large chunk is sort of, you know, more or less capable. So, and okay. when we put those together, we again have the majority or at least moderately capable of all of these, these different procedures I described. And then we have other groups of people who have… We didn't find so far any group of people when we do a, you know, kind of a profile analysis. We didn't find any group of people who couldn't do any of these things, mm-hmm. right? So we find usually deficits in one area. So people could beef that up. Um, and you know there are some people who are of such severe problems, perhaps, that they, they might be unable to learn this proce- any of these procedures. But I think that's probably a fairly small m- minority of the, of, the, of the broader population, um, so, you know, it it most people are capable of, of all of these procedures, and, and then the rest of the of everybody else is more or less capable of at least at least most of them, not all of them. And that's where we do the learning. That's where we, you know, identify, I think, what we are deficit in, what we are to have some limitations in. Um, you know, it might be the repertoire component, you know, some of us might be very good at one type of of behavior and not so good at many others. So say always expressing who we are, what our, what our, what our feelings are, expressing emotion, but they're not, might not be very good at at suppressing emotion. And so that's a, that's a, a, that could and that doesn't mean they won't be able to function in the world. It just means they don't have that in their repertoire. Because, you know, not showing emotion is sometimes very important in life. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, and so we can begin to take stock of these things. You know, well, what, what, what am I able to do? What am I, what could I use some, some you know, could I practice on a little bit? Or say optimism. Optimism is kind of a trait. Optimism is part of this mindset, really. But it also can be learned. And there's research showing it can be learned. So if we don't think of ourselves as a very optimistic person, we could try it out a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I actually suggest in in the book, The End of Trauma, which you mentioned earlier, um, the most recent book I did, I suggest using self-talk, which is a kind of a way of just talking to ourselves, where we say, you know, for optimism, we'd say, you know, you can do it. I can do this. It'll be okay. You know, and we can even put our own name in there, you know, in the, in the, the, so I might say George. You can do this. George, it's always okay in the end. And that research, a lot of research has shown actually that self-talk with your own name in it is even more effective because it gives you a sense of you're watching yourself. Like you get a little bit of objectivity to it.
0: Wow, that's interesting. I must admit that it sounds a bit like an airport psychology book saying that you should stand in front of your mirror every morning and say, Chuck, I'm the best. I can do it all. (laughs) But Actually, you're saying it does have an impact.
1: Yes, and and I think that you know it has to be at least somewhat realistic. You we yeah. have to you have to have some belief in it. You know, like if I stood in front of a mirror and said I am the greatest, that would be kind of ridiculous, right? Yeah. But you know, I, said, I can <laughs> I I can do this is not so ridiculous.
0: Professor Bonano, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks. It was my pleasure. It was absolutely just a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Hey there, thank you for listening to Future Ready. Future Ready is produced by COSIN, a global community of independent communications advisors and changemakers who shape healthy and thriving businesses. Find out more at wearecosin.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or forward this show to someone who you think will love it. Let me finish with a beautiful quote from Mahatma Gandhi. The future depends on what you do today. In this spirit... Go get Future Ready today.